Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Javier De La Torre. Javier is the founder and chief strategy officer of Cardo, a location intelligence software company. Javier, welcome to World of DAS. Thank you, Aaron. It's my pleasure to be here today. All right. Now, not everyone is familiar with Cardo. So briefly tell us what is Cardo? Sure. So uh, Cardo is an analytics platform focused on spatial data, the traditional so-called GIS uh, uh, type of platform. We enable organizations to respond, you know, what we'd like to say is, you know, where things happen versus just uh, not, not only see where things happen, but why they happen somewhere. So we utilize BigQuery, Snowflake, and Databricks as the storage, and then we put on it, you know, like the uh, the tools so that you can effectively do a space analytics on your location data. Okay, and like you know, the granddaddy in GIS would be like Esri. They've been around for a long time. There's like, of course, there's like Google Maps. Like, how do you see yourself in that space and stuff? Sure, big time. I mean, like the uh, um, the GIS industry has been what, like forty or fifty years by now, right? And Esri has been a big dominant player for a long, long time. So, uh, so yeah, so we see each other quite a bit of time. Um, in a way, I mean, we we see the GIS industry as a very traditional industry of like you you will go to geography class, you will be trained in a set of GIS tools, then you will use that through your career. Um, so that that industry kind of like that exists. But if you think about it, it really is just analytical software, right? So there's another section of what I'd like to say, like a spatial analyst or spatial data scientist, people who work with uh, location data that do not come from that GIS world. And that is kind of like the the, the phase where we call like the, the area that we're focusing on. And so so like a very a very advanced like Snowflake user and Alteryx user, BigQuery, that type of person? Yeah, big time. So, uh, in fact, actually, there's uh, obviously a huge, you know, like revolution and everything around analytics, and and there's more and more people now coming to analytics. We believe exactly the same needs to happen on GIS. More and more people need to be able to do a spatial analytics. So, if we can make um, a spatial analytics available in that ecosystem, in that set of products, we like to call them like cloud native kind of like products. You know, like we think, you know, there's a huge um, um, there's a huge opportunity to essentially kind of like increase dramatically the size of organization doing the spatial analytics. So this is what we really believe in. So we think, you know, like there is a space for an analytics platform that is connected to all these new uh, cloud native products that, you know, will be appealing to not a, someone that went to study geography, but someone that does analytics and is now getting new into spatial data. And in analytics, like it is one of the key things for a spatial analytics company would be the map, right? It, that That is kind of like, it, you wanna be able to use that map or some sort of UI involving a map or um, pinching the map or putting a boundary on a map or something like that to do your analytics. Is, is that the central piece of it? Like the, the UI? It all goes back to, to you know, what we like, to say the difference between knowing where versus knowing why. If all you want to see is you know where your customers are, where you, you know where your stores or you know where your operations are, you might as well use a business intelligence tool such as Tableau, right? So you can just present it on a map. And for that, you're going to need you have your data, what we call the your data layer, your enterprise layer, if you want to say, and you're likely going to overlay that on something like Google Maps. 
right? That provides you with a very rich cartography. Now we have a lot of options. You have like OpenStreetMap, base maps, you know, have your map box. You have like many different color products out there to give you that reference. And if all you want to see is on a map that's where things happening, there's a number of tools with that. Now, the issue is like, or, or you know, where we go farther, what we say, you know, like going to why is, well, what if you need to understand why those customers are on those places? Where else could they be those customers? You know, like what are the conditions around those places that make them special to your business process? Or figure out the future, where should I put my store or, or that type of thing? Certainly. In fact, you know, like size selection is one of our biggest uh, use case. It's, it's, it's makes sense, right? I mean, like one of the beauty of a space analytics is that it gives you context. It allows you to understand your data based on where things happen and then extrapolate it and think about other places. So actually one of our number one use cases is revenue prediction based on location. So if you have these number of stores in these locations, and these are the demographics, the human mobility, for that we actually use safe graphs data. Now like you can model what are the characteristics that makes a store perform at a certain level in a location. Now you go and look for similar places and you could predict that you will perform the same level. And that is the foundation of a lot of space analytics. Do you think of it as a SaaS company? Because you'll sell services, you have analytics, you've got data. Like, how do you think about it if you put yourself in a box or something? We are definitely a, a software as a service company. So our core really is our key. Key metric really is annual recurring revenue of our product, our software, right? So that's that's actually um, kind of like number one priority. Now, in today's world of analytics, uh, customers are going to need you know like to use your product in different ways. We find organizations that are like very um, let's say like spatial savvy. They have like very good spatial data scientists that know what they're doing. They're making their own spatial models. They're they're doing advanced things with our product. Right? And they're also like collecting data from many sources. They're doing all on their own. right? But then on the other spectrum, you have organizations that need to leverage a spatial analytics for things like site selection, but they're not going to know that they don't have the capabilities to do this type of analytics. They don't have their own models or anything like that. And they could use like an off-the-shelf model maybe that you've built or, or brought in. Or maybe they have data scientists, but they don't know how to do anything around the spatial data science too. So... So you see, so in those cases, we either kind of like need to kind of like help them and provide them with a solution for site selection. We have a number of solutions built in for uh, for site selection and, and other use cases. But then sometimes we need to actually help them to make the model themselves. So we do have a team. Um, around two years ago, we acquired one of our partners uh, and to actually make part of our professional services. And the reason is because um, our customers were asking us to help on using our product. So I think in any modern analytics platform, you're going to see a level of, you know, like uh, professional services helping customers to, um, to kind of like make the best use of your product. And those who actually do not have them, they're normally hiding it behind customer success or other forms of, you know, like areas. So we say, no, I mean, like these kind of projects are going to require professional services and they represent a small margin of our revenue. And it's not the key metric, but it's a fundamental piece to help certain organizations. And make them happier. Yeah, yeah, every time and, and, and successful, right? I mean, like, in a way, products are going sometimes faster in innovation than even companies can, can accept. So without these services, 
they wouldn't be able to capitalize on the advantages on the space of modeling that we're introducing these days. So services is becoming a fundamental part. And, and not only services, you were mentioning data. Um, so one of the big, one of the big differentiators of, of Carto is, is also what we call data observatory. So we, we aggregate data from many sources, SafeGraph is one of them, uh, but also MasterCard, Vodafone, many very large providers um, of location data. We prepare the data, we, we consolidate it, we put it under the same um, spatial support system, you know, like same grids, you know, like we clean it, we, we prepare it and we make it accessible directly from our software. And that's also a huge advantage for the adoption because many organizations, like we, we know, they, they're going to need the data to do the models or do the analysis that they need. If we facilitate all that and make, you know, like the product batteries included, it just makes it so much easier for them to start getting value. So uh, for that, we also need to kind of like enable this data, uh, selling data. And, and uh, on one of the things I like about Cardo is, is you're kind of known for strong partnerships. Of course, SafeGraph, where I work is, and Cardo are partners, but, you know, you work with things like Google and Snowflake. Like, how do you think about partnerships as a strategy for growing businesses? And how do you think other companies should be thinking about that? No big time for us. This is uh, this is super. It's at the core of our company. Um, actually, the mission of Carto is to is to enable um, more and more users to to benefit from space analytics. We, we I mean, obviously, I'm a, I'm a geek on everything around maps and geospatial. I think you know, like space analytics will revolutionize the world. It is revolutionizing the world already, and it has a huge potential. Of almost every organization, but it's a pity that. It's only in the hands of a, of a few users. And for us, so this democratization of GIS, this democratization of space analytics is key. And if, if all we are is after democratization, then the more important it is to think about, you know, like going after the users where the users are. So this, yep. we, we like, we say, I mean, this is a common trend on the industry, like no man is an island. So therefore no company is an island. I mean, like analytics don't start and end on your product. You're going to be part of a wider ecosystem. So for us, it only makes sense to think about like what is spatial analytics fits within, you know, the cloud infrastructure, the ETL, you know, the low code uh, like applications, all those art pieces that your customers are going to need. And what we want them is to make use of the best spatial data and spatial analytics on those products. Right, so so therefore, you know, like for us, partnerships is very strong. It also is a very very strong from a go-to-market perspective. Um, you've seen we've announced uh, Carto spatial extension for uh, BigQuery, Carto spatial extension for Snowflake. The reason is that we see huge amounts of users on those platforms that could be leveraging more spatial, but they don't have the tools for that. And um, so when we go to market together with them. It means that now a spatial analytics is part of the um, digital transformations in a lot of these organizations. So it's it's a, it's in our mandate, it's in our mission, and and you know what we think we can bring to the market. But it's also a great go-to-market strategy. How do you train your staff? And we, we struggle with this at SafeGraph. How do you train your staff to co-sell with partners? Well, that's a great question. And the, the reason is like we, we're still figuring out. I mean, it's not it's not easy for us. It was new. We we um, we had to change a lot of our go-to-market when we started partnering with Google, Snowflake, Databricks, and all the others. And, and and yeah, so over the last year, we've actually done huge work on that. So so the first thing is that 
you have to be sure you know like the incentives are right and all these things. And then it's a ton of training. It's a ton of training that we have to do around marketing, enabling materials. A lot of you know, like what is the architecture, you know, like the architecture of your product within an ecosystem and you know within a wider picture, right? Then we actually had to transform a lot of you know like our go-to-market efforts towards uh, in a way selling to the solution engineer of the partner. So that's another very important part. Let's say you have a solution engineer at Google. In some ways, like they're an influencer to get to the end customer. Let's say you're trying to sign, um, you know, a huge uh, CPG brand that uses GCP. Google's an influencer. Like, so you have to like influence the influencer with your marketing. Or are you like calling them? Are you sending them cookies? Like, how do you, how does one do that? We do all of that. <laughs> we don't send them cookies. We, we might think about it, but we definitely send them teasers. We, I mean, like you know, getting champions inside those organizations is a key part. And you don't get them really by sending them teasers. I mean, you just get them really by winning, winning deals, and you know, like and 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 giving them training, them and giving them support. So you know, to your question for like, how do you train? A lot of the effort, you know, on the go-to-market sometimes now goes towards just supporting that layer, ensuring they have like, they're going to make a proposal to a customer, ensure that geospatial is considered well, that is, you know, well, well portrayed, the use cases are well-defined, the architectures for them, the benefits, all those sort of things. In fact, actually, one of the things that we find, and this is, I don't know what's, what's your opinion, or uh, Oren, but uh, they don't know about geospatial. You just don't really know about the location data. And if you work with some of those partners and some of the solution engineers, they're not even aware that their products have a strong geospatial support, right? They, they don't even think that, you know, like that's driving a lot of like uh, computing or so. So it's kind of like, it's a hidden secret in, in a way. And, and you find like some champions inside some of these organizations that have been educated on geo and GIS back in the days and, and they get it. But a lot of people don't get it. So most of the time, it's about like opening their eyes. Like, hey, this type of analytics is super relevant to your existing customers. It can help them with all these use cases that they didn't know. And, and your product with our product can do that. So be sure that when you talk to a telco, mention that they can actually do churn reduction if they think about location, about the space all data, right? And that is, you know, it's so... In a way, I, I love it because, you know, you get to talk a lot about, you know, what GIS and geospatial enables. And, and I think it's, that is still is the case. I mean, it's, it's a lot of, you know, evangelizing about how, um, you know, spatial analytics can help. And when you're going to market, have you thought about like a, a more truly self-serve model or how I'm sure you've had these debates internally in the company. Like, how have you debated that and how, how have you ended up coming down on some of these things? <laughs> Big time. Um I'm a big believer actually in a kind of like a product growth strategy. So, uh, so self-service mode, I mean, right now, Carto, you can go to Carto.com and get an account, a free trial for 14 days and start using the product on your own. Uh, I don't think it's as easy as it could be to actually engage more of the users that we're looking for, but that's definitely you know, like something that we are trying to improve. So I think as a company like ours, you have to think that way. You have to think that you know, like uh, the self-service and the product growth model is going to is going to happen because that's how you make like really solid and valuable platforms. If you know, like if they can work this way. Now between then and now, I mean, there's 
again, going back to not many people know what the space analytics can do for right, them. right. So there's a lot of education and yeah. You know, so there's a lot of education. So you might go to a customer and they didn't even know about this. So or or they're asking you questions that can be solved with the space analytics, but they never thought about like going after a location intelligence or GIS platform. So so you see, so in those cases, that's where it makes sense, you know, to also kind of like have more of like another kind of like approach of like let's let's give them solutions, a more value-based approach, you know, like because you're gonna need quite a bit of education and, and training towards uh, towards those customers. So so I think on the long term for sure. And the biggest growth in the analytics space happened, you know, like self-service. I mean, Tableau is an incredible example of that. Yeah. Yep. Or Tableau, Looker, all these great companies. Yeah. And that was incredible growth of a like a land and expand a strategy of, you know, like that's what we need on our industry. And how do you think about like, so you've got this 14 day trial. I'm sure internally you've debated like a freemium model, like maybe a, a stripped down version of Cardo or something like that. That's free. Like, you know, how have you debated that internally and how did you end up coming down on this like 14 day trial versus some other, you know, some other go to market strategy? Well, so first of all, I mean, you know how this is, you know, like every year there's going to be a, a new pricing discussion, a new pricing ideas. And so this is always an evolving an evolving space. In our case, I mean, Cartra started with a freemium model. So we- Oh, I know, didn't know that. Had, okay. Yeah, we had that freemium model for a long time. Actually, we have more than 250,000 users on the freemium model. Oh my gosh. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's quite large. Um, now, um, and we actually probably on the way of uh, reintroducing that still kind of like an ongoing, you know, with the latest version of Carto and the previous version of Carto is still available. We give, you know, like the, um, the the software for free, you know, to nonprofits and the number of, you know, like we have like a, a, a program uh, towards that. Now, when it comes to kind of our commercial Kali site, we find that, you know, like the, uh, um, the best way that we've been actually kind of like capturing kind of like value working with enterprises is actually working with them towards explaining them how uh, location intelligence space analytics can help the business. So that is a bigger enterprise type of discussion, but users do actually want to try it for themselves too. But then the freemium go into that. So I think we haven't managed to kind of like, I guess, bridge the gap between, you get a, you get a number of users that really what they want to do is like, awesome maps. They just want to have beautiful maps. And and, that, and, th- and there's value on that and, and, and that's great. And I love those maps, but in order to move to another like, well, now I'm actually doing spatial analytics and I'm getting extra value from my location data. There is quite a gap. And I don't think we have managed to kind of, kind of like find, you know, the right approach towards that learning curve. So, and if you don't have that, then I think you know, like Freeman is not necessarily helping you because you end up having two products. The one for the enterprise customer that is extracting actual value to space analytics and those who come just to make maps. And that I don't think is also uh, a good approach. So on the long term, as I say, you know, like we, we think it that way. I think uh, it's it makes sense, you know, like the only way in a way to, to really scale fast on a place like this is gonna be through, um, from my perspective, line and stand and you know, like and 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 freemiums and you know, like and and even you know, like consumption kind of like uh, uh, models. Um, but right now, we're just iterating to ensure that customers understand the value that we're providing. And how do you think about selling data? Because like sometimes your customers might want extra data or bring in data. Or how do you think about that? It's a very very high percentage of our uh, um, uh, our 
customers uh, acquire parts or together with data. And it makes sense. Again, like you said, like uh, um, in, in GIS and space analytics, it's all about context. If you want to understand your, uh, your business based on location, you're gonna need your data in those locations, and then you're gonna need to understand those locations. And how do you understand those locations? Through third-party data. So it's as simple as that. So most space and analytics will require to a minimum demographics, to a minimum. And then from there, it kind of like starts increasing depending on the use case. So for us, uh, data has become uh, aligned in most of the proposals for customers. And, and those are actually written as, uh, the way that we, we sell data is a subscription. It's a subscription to data products you know, renewed yearly, and where we take care of uh, maintaining, updating, etc. Again, you know, because of our cloud native strategy, our goal with, with data that we distribute is to make it as cloud native as possible, which means that in the case of BigQuery, we actually just share it logically. In the case of Snowflake, it's through the data marketplace. In the case of RedSafe, it's through the RedSafe data exchange on Amazon Web Services. On, on Databricks, we're working on Azure, um, oh, sorry, on, on Delta Serves. So there's a huge revolution towards data sharing on these cloud infrastructures. And we are trying to make sure that we distribute that way. We think it's the, the right approach. But when it comes to, from a business perspective, it is about helping the customer understand, okay, if you're looking to solve this use case, this is the data that might actually be interesting for you. And then it becomes part of the proposal. And very often, you know, we, we land, you know, with a customer for one territory and then three months later and say, okay, now we'll do it in this, all these other regions. So it's, it's a continuous uh, request to, uh, to help on them on that. If you were to go back in time, what's some big strategic mistake you think you made? Or I, I love like when people can learn from our mistakes and stuff like that. Like what would you have done differently? Let's say in the last few years. Well, probably a, a ton of things. I mean, like being an entrepreneur, I mean, like I cannot say that we got like a, a straight line on process. So uh, I don't know. I mean, like every every mistake obviously is a is a is a, is a teaching. You should definitely not think about them as you know what you can learn from them, so on. But you know, like going back to our conversation from a strategic perspective, which I I get to to work a lot now. I think you know this concept of like no man is an island, no no business is an island. Think of your product, think of your business, think about your value proposition on a wider context. On the you know how do you how are you part of a bigger picture? And I think you know like that was one of the things that took us a while to think you know like well. So our product used to help you from doing ETL, you know like uh, visualization, transformations, building. You know like it used to do everything. Um, and that was looking back, you know, like a mistake not to try to call it focus on what is your area of, you know, like value that you're getting as to a customer. So, um, so from my point of view, that, that would be one of the things that, you know, like I will, I will reconsider from the beginning. It essentially meant that we had to call it pool a lot on our own. And, and it, it really feels well when you go in with partners and you actually call like really, I mean, so, so you say that we are. Uh, super partner friendly, and I I'm glad that you see us that way. I don't think we were always we oh we were always were, and although we might sometimes thought we were, it takes an incredible amount of work to really be partner friendly. It takes a lot of effort to your teams. It takes a lot of efforts to think about your product, about you know like how you do business, 
it is is not easy, and it took us a long time. Founded the company uh, about nine years ago, um, and then a couple of years ago, you decided to bring in a, a CEO, um, um, give up the CEO spot, bring a new CEO, and become chief strategy officer. Like, walk me through like the decisions because a lot of startup founders, like especially seven years into a company, might be thinking about that type of thing of layering up. Like, walk me through that decision. How did you come down on it? How did you think about it? Like, what was the process, uh, et cetera? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, a lot of people ask me about that. You're right. I mean, like, this is the type of things that uh, is, is a very, very tough process on, uh, on companies like ours. Uh, um, I mean, in my particular case, it all started with uh, some changes on our uh, on our executive team. Uh, I, I had a co-founder, left the company, um, was looking for a new COO. I couldn't find really anybody that I really liked uh, to work with. And and so, so I essentially kind of went through a process of like really kind of just kind of like really, really crunching. And in full honest, I mean, one of my, after six months, it was kind of like, well, I'm exhausted. I'm, I don't think I'm focusing on the right things when it comes to a strategy and, you know, how we actually get this. I'm, I'm just like trying to survive this crazy operational role in a way. And and I, I just I, I don't enjoy it, and I think you know like it's uh, uh, it's it's not it's not gonna work. So from my point of view, I mean, I was like it was a it was a clear um, it was a clear decision. Says like, well, um, I got to know uh, Luis, which is our CEO for a number of years, and I was like, hey, look, for the right person, someone that I can trust, I'm definitely you know, like thinking you know, like stepping down will not only make the company more successful, but my life, honestly, also my personal life and my and my interest just so much better. And, and looking back was really the right decision. So if you've come to a point where you are like um, already, you know, like really uh, burned or you're like just really overworked and you don't think that you're making the best out of your, your I think, you know, like it's, it's a good time to, to think like how you can restructure things. And luckily I, I, I knew someone that I could trust and, you know, that I could work. So I went straight to the board and told them uh, around this and say like, but I think I do know, you know, like a great, you know, candidate that could come and, you know, like, and, and they were very supportive. Oh gosh. So it's not like you ran a formal search. Like you already had the kind of person in mind before you decided to step down or something. Yeah. In my case, we were looking for a COO and I wasn't really kind of like uh, happy with, you know, the type of uh, the, the candidates that we were getting. That's when I said like, look, uh, might make sense to you know that, you know, we then look for a CEO and I do know someone that could actually take this role. And that was kind of like the, uh, and that was kind of like the, the journey in there. And then we, we kind of like discuss around it as well. So that was, that was my particular scenario. I mean, like finding a CEO must be, or it, it is really tough, I guess. Um, I was super lucky uh, again, you know, that I knew someone that, you know, like I could trust and that, you know, like will allow me to focus on the things that I like and that I thought, you know, will have a bigger impact and so on. And so therefore, you know, this transition worked uh, really well, but it, it is a, it is a very tough, uh, it is a very tough moment. It's a very tough decision, um, but I'm glad I did it. What are some non-obvious things you think we'll see in the world of geospatial in the next few years? I tend to think that, you know, like there's probably more obvious things that still happen that haven't happened yet. I just think about, you know, like the, the huge impact that machine learning and AI has been having on the analytics world. And if you think around it on geo, and it only has touched the surface. We've only seen, you know, like some of those, uh, uh, this, 
this type of analytics in remote sensing, you know, earth observation, you know, like for feature detection and so on. But if you look at most of the uh, spatial models and spatial color like analysis that is done this day, it still is it's not leveraging much uh, uh, machine learning and and you know or, or you know like uh, AI or some of the models. So so I think you know like let's say that you know like in it's the most obvious is going to be that part. I think you know like that's something that we see. Then the other things that you know like it's uh, I don't know if they are obvious, but for me I mean it's going to be these joining of geospatial with uh, um, with the rest of analytics. So um, these uh, these platforms like these cloud data warehouses that are happening, uh, you know, like BigQuery, Redshift, you know, like Snowflake, so on, are are tremendously changing this the industry. But in the case of Geo, it's huge. There are like we like to say there's like four things that you know, like make this like so dramatic that you know like people are not even realizing. If you think about it, like they're so much more cost effective. So that's going to be uh, the, like a the snowflake or something. Separation. Yeah, the computing the storage separation. Just think on, we've traditionally had to have like gigabytes and gigabytes of data in memory just in order to be able to do space analytics. And now that, is, that has changed dramatically. The other is like, they're like incredibly more performant and scalable that is accessible. Accessibility of, of a scalability. You're like now writing SQL and you get, you know, like paralyzed analysis. That's pretty amazing in our in our space. The third thing that I think it's that I um that I think is very, very critical to, to data is this uh cloud um data clouds. This concept of like logical sharing that you know, like data doesn't move, that there's no ETLs, that has a profound change of in the way that we think about distributing data. I mean, like it's it means data will always be fresh, never stalled. You know, like it's it's it, I like to say it's always a join away. And the more data sets you join, the more interesting questions you can attack, essentially. And much more, you know, like connected in real time, because now you as a data provider, like say for I will make sure that you have like the best data always updated on this aspect. And your analysis is 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 feeding live from that other. It's if you think about like the connections that are going to happen, the this this graph of uh, that that's going to be amazing. And the last one, which for me, it is it is huge, is the rise of a SQL and in our case, a spatial SQL as the lingua franca for analytics. If you think about it, I mean, it's like now SQL is almost on every step of the analytics process. You know, from ETLs, most ETLs as they are defined as SQL commands, to all the way to um, low-code uh, environments. Now you can develop entire applications just by writing SQL. And if you think all, all, all the pieces in the middle, you think about like um, machine learning in SQL, you know, like uh, all, all the steps that will are in between you know, these two sides, uh, all driven by a single language, I think you know, like that is going to bring a level of interoperability, a level of kind of like possibility to put pieces together faster than ever before. And that we it's, it's gonna be incredible. I, I'm very actually very excited about like all this uh, in, in kind of like connectivity of all the pieces with one single lingua franca being SQL. We're seeing this massive increase in quote unquote data scientists, right? It's gone up probably 10x in the last four years, but it's not that all these people all of a sudden have like all this data science training because uh, that would be hard to 10x in four years. It's it's the fact that like a very a smart person 
with a tool like Snowflake now can be as dangerous as a data scientist was five years ago without it, because now now they can use all these tools, which is really exciting. So, you know, the the average McKinsey analyst now can actually be a, a data scientist, right? So just kind of like a smart person, uh, which is really, really exciting. We're seeing this explosion. I think taking it even farther, I mean, like they can do this analysis and now they can also build an application and they can distribute it to someone to make use of that analysis. So it, it is not only themselves that they're enabling themselves, is that they're going to be enabling many others too. So it's only going to be exponential. Yeah, that's right. And so, and it's, it's interesting because like a lot of people don't, they might not consider themselves a software developer. That's like a it's kind of a different level. So, you know, the number of software developers hasn't gone up that much in the last, in the last five years, but the number of data scientists has exploded. Um, and, and because, uh, cause they can be do that, which is, which is really cool. Now, I, I really interested. I know you're on the board of OGC, which is the Open Geospatial Consortium. I'm a huge fan. I'm a supporter of the organization. How do you see these like non-governmental, like standards bodies helping support geospatial innovation? Well, big time. I mean, like if in, in our space on geospatial, I mean, like OGC has had a huge impact over the number of years in the form of your know, like specifications that are used in a day-to-day basis. So. Uh, and like, yeah, pretty much any software that has some geo on it, it has some OGC involved on in it. And the level of in, um, interoperability and also like innovation that has facilitated by opening up the field, I think it's been uh, very tremendous. In today's world, I mean, like one, one example, one initiative that we're working on is uh, facilitating interoperability between these cloud data warehouses. How do you export data from BigQuery and then import it in Databricks and still the geospatial data, it's understood and maintained and can interoperate on these two systems, right? Um, well, that actually requires quite a bit of coordination. I think industry kind of like organizations like OGC, because OGC is paid by members who are uh, private companies, you know, like, um, benefit a lot from this because, you know, like they can actually really work on these problems, you know, like enable a level of interoperability that just drives more business for everybody. When you talk to any of those uh, data warehouses, um, no one tells you like, oh, we want to differentiate ourselves by providing login. Say, no, no. What we want is to kind of like enable the more, you know, like data transfers between the systems as possible. We, we, they don't find themselves in, you know, like, and that is, uh, and, and that is something that, you know, like they couldn't be doing without, you know, coordination in an organization like OGC. So that's one side. It has a huge impact on the business itself. Uh, sometimes more than probably uh, people realize, but without those standards, a lot of business wouldn't be possible. That's one side. The other thing that I think is very important, and for me, it touches me a lot based on my background, is the importance on, on aspect things like, you know, climate change. There is certain kind of like um, fields now where data interoperability is going to be crucial if we need, if we, if we are to, we're going to manage to advance, to speed up our understanding of the impacts, you know, the models that can help us on resilience, on reduction, on optimization, all these beautiful things that we talk that geo can provide in terms of like prediction and optimization, they get done much more if they're done uh, in an interoperable way. So um, in, a, in a world now that needs you know, to act fast on these topics, interoperability is not only something that is uh, nice to have, but it's a requirement from my point of view. It's always hard because the standards bodies don't move quickly. 
right? It might take them often takes them many, many years to, to agree to a standard at that point, like that standard may not be as valuable anymore, or it's, it's like 14,000 compromises to, to reach. So how do you think different organizations should think about that continuum? Like, should we just work on the standards bodies for like the most important things that really should have a lot of thought and then just like move really quickly on the other things? Or where, where do you feel like the continuum should be? It's a very, very good question. And it's a very, very tough one to discuss. Um, I would put, you know, like OGC has been traditionally, OGC hasn't been the slowest organization body up. Yeah, think about like ISO or something like that. I mean, forget about the standardization something less than 15 years. So, um, but still, I mean, like when when the pace of innovation is as fast as it is right now in analytics, it, it is tough to call like a standardized pretty much anything, right? I mean, every every year there's a new big data format in a way, right? So, so yeah, so this is a very good challenge. I mean, like OGC now has an approach towards kind of like working with the with the industry in in the innovation and kind of like in a cycle of like there's these community standards that then later if they evolve can go towards you know like a bigger level of maturity. So the idea in here is like how do how do we do standards that you know like are huge you know like and super complicated. Like, I mean, and there's been a few examples of standards that have been done even at OGC that has become, you know, like monsters in themselves and took many years to develop. Now, I think the approach is more towards, you know, like how we can start like, like simple, more like community, ensure that the products are going to adopt it, that it provides value. And then, you know, like go through the process of providing a standardization so that there's security on the usage of them. So instead of, you know, like thinking about like creating standards from, kind of like, let's architect how the world should be. It's like, let's try to extract what we see is working on the industry and then help to standardize it as we go forward. So that's one strategy that OGC is going. At the end of the day also, it's it's everybody's responsibility. If we don't get involved in the standardization, a standardization will not happen. So um, OGC is this industry, you know, like, led you know kind of like a, a standardization body where everybody can participate and from my point of view should participate if they want to call kind of like make that happen now that's tough sometimes to to convince you know to someone that is moving at a thousand kilometers per hour but on the long term and if you've been on this industry for a long time enough you see that it's it's the only way now okay a couple of questions um you know, you are uh, probably our listeners could tell you're from Spain. What are something about the European geospatial market that maybe only a European would know? <laughs> well, probably, yeah. I mean, like Europe is pretty complex when it comes to geography. <laughs> so that's probably the thing. Just think about like how many same, you know, like uh, diversity that we have when it comes to languages. We have it also on, on geo, right? So uh, there is, you know, like one, you know, like a geographic uh, organization per country on the public sector. We, each country would use its own geographic uh, coordinate systems, you know, like, so it's, uh, I mean, there's obviously a very big tradition when it comes to, uh, um, to, um, uh, to, to geo overall. So, uh, so I think, you know, like what normally, I mean, like Europeans, but we, 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 we tend to understand better, I think, diversity in the sense like we know that the world is complex, that, you know, like data standards are going to have to call like accept many different variations, you know, like that no one size fits all. 
essentially. So that's that's something that 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 we find a lot. And and the other thing that you know we we actually I think Europeans have a big advantage too is on on data harmonization. If you think about like how we can actually kind of cooperate at, at Europe in with so many administrations, governments. Yeah, like it's it's pretty amazing, you know, like the 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 the, the sophistications, you know, to, to be able for data sharing. But, you know, I think we are probably the, the champions when it comes to data sharing and harmonization of geospatial data in the world. Starting with some initiatives that can be have been maybe more or less successful. So initiatives such as Inspire was an initiative to try to standardize geospatial data across Europe. Um I mean, there's incredible effort that was put on, on those spaces around metadata and how to do automatic transformations between different systems. In the US, we see a ton of French, uh, German, British diaspora. They come to the US, they start companies, but um, we rarely see people from Spain come here. Like, why is that? It's just the weather too nice in Spain and so they just stay? Like, what? what why don't we see more entrepreneurs from Spain come to the US? That's a good point. From that perspective itself, I think that is changing. I mean, like Spain, uh, I mean, like the, the centers for entrepreneur in Europe were initially, obviously, UK was a very strong focal point. You know, like France also did very well. Germany, obviously, Israel, you know, has been, you know, like has a standing tradition. But the concept of built in Europe, commercialized in the United States, uh, it's more, it's, been existed for a number of years now and it's becoming more and more common. Spain maybe just got a little bit later on the on the trend, but nowadays there's actually quite a number of Spanish startups now operating in the United States. So it's becoming a much bigger trend. But even if you think of like Sweden, like there are way more tech companies in Sweden, I think, than in Spain. Like how do you think oh, about the, the, the I mean one one thing that you can say is that Spain had is this kind of middle-sized country that if you're like Sweden or you're like Israel or you're Portugal, Portugal is a great example. Portugal is producing massive amounts of like uh, entrepreneurs. They're doing really, really well when it comes to uh, um, startups. Because they have to move to other markets. Their market's too small. It's yeah. too small. Okay. Spain fits like in this middle, right? So one of the things, you know, like very, that you don't see maybe that often, the most Spanish startups tend to kind of go to South America. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, language, or they enter United States through Miami. That's kind of like the the way that you know. They, very often they land in U.S. in Miami, and then they operate from Miami all to all South America. That's very very common. So I guess it's, it's things like that that you know happen. But uh, but if you if you look in New York, there's more and more kind of like Hispanic entrepreneurs. I don't think there's that many in the West Coast. There's a bunch, and. There are, but you know, like, but it's becoming more and more. You know, like, I, I see, you know, those companies kind of popping up more and more. Yeah, really interesting. And the West Coast, you will run into a French entrepreneur like every and every cafe or something. You know, one of the things that they say that you're know, like, uh, uh, one of the good things about like Spanish entrepreneurs is that we are very persistent. If we we believe in our vision or our idea, I mean, we will do whatever it takes to make it happen. At the it's end, it's like a Don Quixote thing, like. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's our it's our blessed course. I don't know, but you know, like if we if we like it, we will go all the way. Okay, a couple personal questions. Like you recently had an opportunity to travel with the Spanish Prime Minister to the U.S. Like, and I think you flew on the Prime Minister's plane. And everything. like, tell us about that experience. <laughs> that was very that was very uh, funny. So yeah, so he was the the president of uh, of Spain. The president, so he, I'm sorry. Yeah, 
Yeah, so he invited uh, a delegation of entrepreneurs from Spain um, you know, to, to join him on a trip to the United States, uh, mostly to kind of like uh, for financial, I mean, like, uh, I mean, it was just they were meeting with, you know, like with hedge funds, you know, private equity firms. I mean, yeah, essentially to raise, raise, you know, the uh, uh, spectrum of Spain as a company for investment. And, you know, like right now, Spain is in a very, very good position from a, kind of like an investment perspective and opportunities. Europe, as you know, it's going, there's, first of all, I mean, like a huge effort, you know, towards, you know, after COVID, you know, in terms of, you know, like funding uh, from the public sector that is coming, you know, to, to Spain. It's, I think, in the order of like uh, 180 billion uh, um, euros coming to Spain in different forms. So there is there's a massive amount of investment coming in Spain. Spain is a very attractive economy. And, and the president was just trying to call it, portray that on the media sector, on the financial sector. And one of the legs of this travel was to go to uh, uh, to San Francisco, to the Bay Area. And that's where, you know, we we invited us, a few of us to call it, join there. And the first thing was like, you know, like we were on the plane and you actually see these, you know, the jets on the sides, you know, when you, when you, when you take off. You're like surrounded by by jets. That was very that was very cool. That's, uh, the second thing that you see is like I mean, for me it was very impressive uh, to see the government working and like seeing them preparing their meetings and you know like it, it really is just like a, a company, right? So governments at the end and you see it very very uh, very um, motivated people trying to do the best, having their impact. The, the most impressive thing probably was getting in JFK landing. And you wouldn't believe that's Aaron. <laughs> Can you imagine landing in JFK in the plane and being in the Upper East, you know, in your hotel in less than 30 minutes? Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. I, I wanna be I wanna be a president of the country just for that, actually. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like then you you realize how much uh, is a non-stop work. And my <laughs> goodness, it's, it's I mean, these these people are made out of different material. I mean, like it's it's incredible. I mean, the <laughs> the amount of work that they can push forward. Cool. All right. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? Well, there was this saying, you know, when you were, when you were an entrepreneur that, you know, you just have to work really, really, really hard and many, many, many hours. Um, and of course, I mean, you have to work really hard as one, well. but I think, you know, like leaving space towards kind of like, uh, um, you know, like relaxing and so on. I, I think, you know, I probably the advice of working really, really hard was probably actually bad advice. I think you should work to up to a level and then you should let the, the body and your mind recover. Because so, it's, it's not a very European answer. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I realize it, right? A very French one. It's so <laughs> No, but honestly, I mean, it's, I, I do believe that. What's you know, the like, level? Is it different for each person or how, how do you know when that level is? I think it's very personal, right? I mean, like, uh, I mean, there's times where you're just having so much fun that working is not really working. It's just having fun. So in that point, I mean, like, why, why you should stop and so on. But then working is not always having fun. It's also a lot of, you know, sometimes just kind of like pulling over, you know, like stuff that you just need to get done to move to the next things and, you know, to obtain. So, um, so I think there is a place and, you know, like, you know, where you, and especially now we've, we've seen, you know, the COVID, uh, you know, like it's, we, we have to really take care of our health, our mental health. 
I think you know, like this is something that for a long time, you know, we haven't necessarily, you know, like been looking at, uh, um, you know, like eye to eye. So, uh, and it's a very personal thing. But you know, when you start seeing signs of, you know, like that you're like really um, stressed, that you're like really burnt out, and that you're like that you're like just, I mean, those those effects of stress over a long period of time can be really really bad. I think you know that's my my perspective. Again, I, I don't know what is the level, but you know, like you have to kind of feel it yourself. And I would also recommend you know from time to time step back and say like, hey, what am I doing? Am I at the right level? Ask your friends, ask your fa- ask your family. Do you think I am I am balanced? And sometimes you don't see it. Sometimes you believe, you know, like you're just doing the right thing. Um, yeah. What do you mean by balance? I mean, no one's balanced. I've never met anyone in my entire life who's balanced, right? Good time. But yeah. that's, but I, I, I might, I might, I might call it going up. I'm going to hit the rocks. Do you see like, if I look like, if I continue like this for the next two years, you think I'm going to have like health troubles or you're like, or that, you know, like I'm going to lose friends or I'm going to regret it. You're like, do you think what I'm doing is to run? And of course, I mean, like, there's always be your your mom is always going to be more protective. So, so I mean, you got to be careful. I mean, I'm Spanish, so of course, your mom will always be protective. But you know what I mean, right? So, but it's, but it's the. I don't think it's balance is not the right way. But it's saying like, do you see? It's. I, I think you know, being an entrepreneur is a, is a can be a quite a risky business. Um, because we tend to be very obsessive. We tend to call it really like what we do. And, and if you don't have like these um, control measures, you know, like uh, you, you could see yourself in a, not in a good position. And I think you know, like, uh, that's probably you know, like one of the things where you, you hear, you know, often people say like, no, you're just going to work as hard as you can. Well, up to a certain level, if not, the productivity just goes down. Yep, yep, makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Uh, great, well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for joining us on, on World of DAS. Well, where should people find you? Yeah, so I'm uh, Hatorre, uh, J-A-T-O-R-E, Hatorre in, in Twitter, Carto.com, Hatorre at Carto.com is my email. And now these days, Carl, a lot also on LinkedIn. So uh, please ping me there. Thanks uh, for joining us. Thank you very much, Aaron. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of DAS is brought to you by SafeGraph.